again, good morning. It's great to have you guys here. Uh, the name or the title of my sermon is The Exercise of Correct Thinking. Man, we live in troubling times, especially literally today, as many of us are out of work uh, and our income has been slashed. There's fear of sickness, uh, a variety of other circumstances and situation shortages. Uh, man, it it's a scary time right now to be alive. I've got a business that regardless of whether I make money or not, I've got certain fixed amount overhead, rent, machine payments, and salaries for employees that whether they're working or not, or whether we're making a profit, I'm still decided to pay them. These are troubling thoughts that I've got to battle, and I must weigh them against the character of God. I sure don't see how that this shutdown can be a blessing from God's hand or how this could ever be His will for me and the company that I've spent 30 years building. Today is my 62nd birthday and I could retire tomorrow, but this problem sure puts a dent in my plans. But I want to encourage you, saints, joy, contentment, peace, hope, are still available to the believer today but there's a price we have to pay and that is sold-out devotion to God if we're not willing to do the mental and spiritual gymnastics we're about to talk about of choosing to believe the truth of God's Word over the circumstances around us if we haven't been storing God's Word in our minds there's going to be an inner turmoil rather than the peace he promised. I believe that foundationally in Christianity, there are a few principles upon which the balance of the life of the Christian is based on. And we're going to talk about one of those today. And it's found in the book of Matthew, chapter 6. And it's where Jesus says, Seek first his kingdom. Lord God, we come before you in the name of Jesus. Lord, I would ask that you would give us ears to hear your word, minds to comprehend its meaning and your intention to us. Lord God, would you speak through me? May the voice of scripture resound in the ears of the saints. In Jesus' name, amen. Matthew 6, 25, 34 is where we'll be reading today. And I'm reading it out of the Holman version. Uh, most of you use ESV. It's just what I've been reading. This is why I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Isn't life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the sky. They don't sow or reap or gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you worth more than they? Can any of you add a single cubit to his heart, height by worrying? And why do you worry about clothes? Learn how the wildflowers of the field grow. They don't labor or spin thread. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all of his splendor was adorned like one of these. If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today 
and thrown into the furnace tomorrow, won't he do much more for you, you of little faith? So don't worry saying, what shall we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear? For the idolaters eagerly seek all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be provided for you. Therefore, don't worry about tomorrow, because tomorrow will worry for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. And other versions start out verse 34 by saying, take no thought. So I'll be using these interchangeably, worry and take no thought, as we're building a bridge of ideas today. Have you lost your job during this time? Has your income been reduced? Are you a single mom trying to figure out now, man, with this extra added burden, what you're going to do? Do you fear getting sick? Who might take care of you? The outcome of that sickness? Has the isolation of social distancing, has that highlighted your aloneness or your singleness? Now hear me, saints. My main point today is this. Correct thinking is always an exercise of choice. Correct thinking is always an exercise of choice. We will see here as we begin, and we'll see later that there's a spiritual battle in the mind, and how we engage it will determine whether we live as Christians in a faithful manner. Over the course of these ten verses, Jesus uses the word worry in a negative sense six times and then he also does so in a different way when he asks these when he says you're asking these questions again those are thoughts and questions of worry he also provides examples to clearly illustrate the creator actively engaging as a loving provider whether it's food or drink or clothing or overall life itself Jesus directs us to correct thinking. He calls our attention to the fact that the idolaters seek all those things that their affections demand they do so, and they do that without any regard for God's obvious care that Jesus points out in nature. He then proceeds to exhort us to choose actions of faith coupled with the profound confidence that our Father knows we need the listed necessities of life and is powerful enough to accomplish them all. Jesus' admonition of do not take thought for tomorrow regards our thinking ahead that's based on worry versus faith. He's not telling us not to prepare or to plan but we're to do so with the underlying idea that all of these preparations must be done in faith, honoring God and his sovereignty. You know, Jesus lived and preached a life of paradox. Case in point, these verses, where Jesus tells us to set aside the idea of self-preservation and live as a person of faith remembering the true nature of a father. 
The foundational principle that I mentioned earlier is spoken here by Jesus. Seek ye first in his kingdom. If you set that exercise as the all-consuming passion of your life, you're going to have mental peace. As Jesus concludes this portion of his sermon, he commands us to live in today because there's already enough temptations and distractions to cluster and clutter our mind that steals our attention, our loyalties, and our worship from our Creator to ourselves. Jesus' chastisement is directed towards the person whose thoughts of God's character are subservient to their faceless, faithless, desperate clamoring toward things that are already seen as provided by God to the rest of his creation in nature. Now that's a mouthful, I want to repeat that. Jesus' chastisement is directed towards the person whose thoughts, whose idea, whose picture of God's character is subservient to their faithless, desperate clamoring to gain the things that we already can see are provided by God to the rest of his creation in nature. And then as a verbal exclamation point, Jesus says, aren't you worth more than they? Reminding us of sparrows and the flowers. There can be a mental calm that faithful trust can generate in us. As we seek God's kingdom first, we gain God's perspective, his mindset, renewing our mind to accurate scriptural thinking. Now as a companion verse to 634 is Lamentations 3, 22 through 23 that says, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. You know, many, many, many times over the 30 year, 39 years Betty and I have been married, when I walk out the door, she hands me my lunch and she'll say, hey, guess what, it's a new day. You've got new mercies. And she reminds me daily of the fresh power that God gives for our daily mental war of temptations. Remember that our main point is correct thinking is always an exercise. It's work. And we're going to talk that there's also both limitations and proper postures to facilitate this renewing of our mind, this accurate, godly thinking that changes our actions. 1 Corinthians 13, 12 says, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know, even as I am known. So the scripture here, Paul's referring, he's saying, hey, whether you meet the Lord in the air, whether you die, whether he comes down and grabs you, then you're going to know fully. But until then, you're going to see dimly, as if there's a cloud in front. This is a limitation that hinders our thinking, regardless how much we exercise our minds towards scriptural thinking. 
It's like being at the gym and you go in the swimming pool and you see a guy who's only got one leg. He can only swim based on the restriction of his handicap. We do not see with 2020 vision into the complete wonderment of, God, of who God is because of the fall, because we're sinful creatures. So much of what we see surround us seems to be in contradiction to the Christian's declaration of a loving, kind God who gives bread when we ask for it, who says, knock, seek, and ask. I will answer. Oftentimes we experience the exact opposite. It's at this crossroad of intersecting thoughts that Scripture speaks of will engage in the mental and spiritual battle that we face. Scripture enters in and will determine which course we're going to go. The problem of pain is something that I've been struggling with for years. I find it very difficult to grasp that a good God would allow pain like we see today. But as I continue to exercise my mind, washing it with the Word, I find hope and I'm actually gaining ground as I renew my mind with the God of the Scriptures, when I think back at the God of my experience when I've been in turmoil and He's responded in faithful, loving kindness. We're going to talk a little bit about some attributes of God because I want to show you how this scripture we see dimly it comes together in the scriptures and pertains to you and I. We talk about his utter holiness, completely void of anything evil. No corruption, no falsehoods, no compromise. He is holiness. When you think of his immenseness, he can put one foot on Saturn and one foot on the sun. He can embrace entire solar systems. He can see entire galaxies from start to finish. And then we talk about his power. Look at creation. Creation just blows my mind. There's ecosystems both of animals and like, again, planets orbiting. He keeps them all intact, as well as his ability to sway the hearts of mankind to faith. His exceptional wisdom. I've not studied many other religions, but frankly, Christianity makes sense to me. As I read through the scriptures and I see that I want revenge, and Jesus says, no, vengeance is mine, I'm a just God. There'll come a point in time when that happens. Love your enemy. Do good to those that despitefully use you. It makes sense to me, the kindness of a loving creator asking me to do the same. His infinitiveness, no beginning and no end. So in relationship to this verse about dimness, about seeing dimly, we see that between God being so completely out of the range of our brain's capacity to comprehend Him 
And if we couple that with the sin-tainted lenses that we view him with, our internal portrait of him is muddied. It's unclear. The brokenness that we experience daily reminds us of the contradictory realities that we face. And it forces us to choose. Are we going to choose the reality that we see in Scripture, God's Word? Or are we going to choose a false reality with circumstances that surround us? Saints, I want to encourage you, do not let this dim vision that we currently experience be your conclusive reality or mindset. Don't let it do that. be that. <coughs> Jesus is the anchor of our soul, our sure foundation, our rock of refuge, the calm in the midst of the storm. Psalm 56 tells us that he catches our tears in a bottle and that he counts our sleepless tossings. As you and I wonder what tomorrow's going to be as we're rolling in bed, having nightmares, having thoughts, panics, he's counting them. And he's a God of comfort. In Isaiah 42, 3, it says, A bruised reed I will not break, and a smoldering flax I will not snuff out. A, a reed is a very thin, straw-like type of grass. It's got very thin flesh. And for whatever purpose they used them, back when the scriptures were written, if one was bruised, you know, the, the flesh was dented, they'd throw it away. It was useless. A flax is a wick in an oil lamp. And if it doesn't produce what it was intended for, giving light, as it smolders and it gives off a stench or smoke and it gets in your eyes, God says, I won't snuff it out. Those are instances of you and I. We are bruised reeds. We are smoldering flax. And God says, I'll not break you and throw you away. I won't smolder you out. The scriptural port this scriptural portrait of him is the accurate reality that we must ever put before our mind's eyes. So I want to ask you, what tools have you used to define the characteristics you've carved or painted his image into? the one that resides in the core of your soul? Have you used the tool of tradition, whether it's family tradition, whether it's an ethnic tradition, whether or not it's a denominational tradition, denomination that says he's off and he doesn't care. He created and then he's left us to our own. Or is it the denomination Tradition that says, yeah, he's our buddy. Both of those are inaccurate and false. How about half-truths? Is that what you build this character of God on that you perceive in your mind? Half-truths like when Jesus meets blind Bartimaeus 
And the disciples say, man, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus says, man, you missed it both. Neither. Or when you and I possibly look at a wealthy Christian, we say, man, he must be the right righteous dude because God is prospering him. And equally wrongly do we look at the per per poor person or the one who stammers in his speech, or the one who's awkward, always out of a job, always at the short end of a rope. Do we look at those two imperfectly? How about our life experiences? Do we allow our life experiences to define who God is? Now, Saints, again, I would encourage you that we must use like the chisels the paintbrushes, the poetry of Scripture to create the portrait of the Father that we hide in our mind's eyes, especially when we encounter the sorrow of pre-heavenly earth, as we are experiencing right now. I want to reiterate, correct thinking starts with seeking first His kingdom, which as we do, renews our mind, we also know that there's this limitation of dimness caused by Adam's spiritual genetics that he's given to us of a sin nature that we possess that clouds the accuracy of our mind. I want to read a quote by A.W. Tozer, Tozer from a book called Knowledge of the Holy. And this is pretty deep, so please hear me. A right conception of God is basic not only to systematic theology, but to practical Christian living as well. It is to worship what the foundation is to the temple. Where it is inadequate or out of plumb, the whole structure must sooner or later collapse. I believe there is scarcely an error in doctrine or a failure in applying Christian ethics that cannot be traced finally to imperfect and ennoble thoughts about God. It is my opinion that the Christian conception of God current in these middle years of the 20th century is so decadent as to be utterly beneath the dignity of the Most High God and actually to constitute for professed believers something amounting to a moral calamity. Now you guys should have the notes from Ginny. I can give you this quote if you want to read it on your own. But what Tozer is saying here is that our concept of God, rightly or wrongly, affects not only theology, but practical Christian living. And he says that any wrong thinking is based on our inaccurate understanding of the Most High God. And he calls it that it's a decadent observation by Christians in 1960, let alone us as believers, so much that it produces a calamity a calamity 
a moral calamity within believers. And if he's saying that in the 60s, I got to tell you, you and I are in that same crowd. Our perception of the Most High God, we would fall on our face if we thought of him in our presence, in fear and trembling on the ground. What and how does the following pertain and complement the 634 about the dim view, the following scripture? I want to explain it. 2 Corinthians 10.5 says, We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. One, two, three, four different times he suggests something that has to do with our minds. We're in a battle, and that battle is for our souls and the souls of those we know. The Bible says Satan roams around as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Now you and I know that that's not physically walking down the street, but I would say and contend with you that it's as a thought provoker that he tries to steal this image of God that scripture portrays and replace it with a false one. One thing I want to tell you, and I, I want you to remember Tozer's quote, I want to make sure that you understand that I'm not talking solely about a mental ascent to the scriptures. There's plenty of places we read in scripture where that's all it was, was a mental ascent. There was no heart transformation. There was no life transformation. But it is a deep-seated conviction that plays out in our lives. If you do not know the Word of God, you are powerless against the wiles of the enemy, against the mental attacks of the enemy. Read. 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 Meditate. Memorize. Study. Embrace God's Word. Because only then will you be able to fight the tempter's lies. Again, there's, again, there's a number of scriptures that are going to go to the next point that I'm going to try to sandwich all this together about correct thinking, taking no thought, don't worry about tomorrow. Again, seeing this whole context of God's character dimly. And the one scripture I want to talk about before I use the actual scripture that we, we're going to get to is Acts 14.2. It says, but the Jews who refused to believe stirred up and poisoned the minds of the Gentiles against the brothers. You can look up Romans 1.21, Romans 1.28, 2 Corinthians 4.4 for some more additional uh, scriptures on the mental wranglings here. I want to give you a parallel between Matthew 6.34 and the scripture we're going to read today. There is a, in, the, in Matthew 6.34, he says, take no thought or don't worry. And here in the scripture, Paul says to take every thought captive. Those are virtually the same thing that Paul and Jesus are saying. Jesus is saying is, in, sen in a sense, take no thought of the worry of tomorrow. And Paul is adding another caveat to that is, 
take that thought captive. When that thought comes, snuff it out and replace it with what you know to be true of God, one of God's characteristics. How and why do we have to take no thought and to take every thought captive? I want to answer those questions for you. The why is that if we don't, then we will oftentimes take ownership of them as false realities. Think about how many times you've seen someone who's become a success in life and they say, man, my parents told me I can do anything. I can do anything I put my mind to, that I'm talented, I can go anywhere, I can be successful. It was a repeated thought that the parents drummed in the son or daughter, that they began and they took ownership and they became that. Likewise, how many times have we heard, my dad said I'd never become anything, and they chose to like receive that and took ownership of it, and they lived a life of failure. So the whole point that I'm trying to make here is that we don't take ownership of these intrusive thoughts that we have, and I'm going to talk a little bit about that more. At my business, on Wednesdays, the company buys lunch. And out of the six people there, four of us sit together, and we've been trying to have rousing discussions on important things. So we were talking the other day, and one of the guys, we were talking about uh, what's the thing that you fear the most. And one of the guys who would tell you that he's not a Christian said, I fear that I will carry out one of my intrusive thoughts. I fear that I will carry out one of my intrusive thoughts. We talked a little bit about it. He said, yeah, you know, I'm driving down the freeway and somebody cuts me off. You know, I think like, man, if I move over and just hit the rear end of this car, I could spin him around into that Vidoc and he learned, don't mess with me. And man, I'll tell you, that, that just hit me and I, I thought through some things. You and I have intrusive thoughts each and every day to take revenge or that I am my own God, or that, man, I never can catch a break, or I made myself and I deserve the wealth that I have for myself, or I've sinned too many times, Christ's blood, there's no way that it could be powerful enough to wash me clean, or I don't need to repent because I haven't sinned, or a host of other thoughts. I want to give you some scriptural examples of this idea about taking thoughts captive. Think of Jesus telling his disciples, hey guys, I'm about to be betrayed, and after that they're going to scourge me, they're going to crucify me, and I'm going to die. What does Peter say? Man, no way, Lord, that ain't happening to you. What does Jesus say to him? Peter, get behind me? No. Satan, Get behind me, because your thoughts are the thoughts of men versus the will and thoughts of God. Jesus took that thought captive immediately. He knew what was going to happen the next day. He had opportunity to worry and to fear, but he took the thought captive to the obedience of the Father. Think about Jesus in Gethsemane. 
again, in my mind, he knows what's going to about to happen. It's night. He knows that he's going to be betrayed. He knows that in the morning, the cruel, violent things that they're going to do, and that then he's going to take on the sin of mankind. So he's in the garden, and he's crying out to the Father, Father, if there's any way that this cup would pass, and he takes thought, he takes captive that thought. No, not my will, Father, but yours be done. Think about Jesus in the wilderness. And I don't know whether it was Jesus and Satan were literally talking to each other. My guess is it was a mental thing. And that's just my take on it. Three times Satan brought thoughts to Jesus. And all three times he combated them with scripture and took them captive and put Satan to flight. That's why I encourage you, saints, the Word of God is imperative as you and I renew our minds, have correct thinking, take no thought for a mile, take captive those thoughts of worry and fear, seeking God's kingdom, recognizing His sovereignty in our lives and His goodness in our lives. I want to close with this, saints. Don't let the portrait that you paint of God, of yourself, of your spouse, of your family, of your friends, of your circumstances, be done apart from the very words of Scripture given as declarations. Let's pray. Lord God, in Jesus' name we come before you. And we cry out to you in hope, saying, renew our minds. Lord, sustain us in these times of uncertainty. We desperately need you. We love you. In Jesus' name.